I'm going to read a few of the first verses of the book of Jude, and then we're going to go down to the last few verses in the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord, after he delivered his people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, after calling them to persevere in the last of this uh, main section, there's a doxology in verse 24 and 25. Speaking of Christ, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now, as we look at the book of Jude, one of the things that impresses us is this man's authority. And that's what I would want us to focus on today, that this man, Jude, has what we might call an apostolic authority. He is one of the writers here of one of the letters in the New Testament. Now, in in the classic sense of the word, Jude is not an apostle. He's not one of the 12 that followed around with Jesus. He isn't a person like the Apostle Paul, but Jude is classically one of the apostolic writers here. Now, he tells us something about himself. He says he's the brother of James, and James is the author of the little book, a few uh, books ahead of uh, the books of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John called the book of James. Now, when we look at James we realize that James is a brother of the Lord. So if James is a brother of the Lord and Jude is a brother of James, then Jude is one of these brothers that's mentioned in the book of Matthew as one of Jesus' brothers. 
having Mary for his mother and Joseph as a biological father. So Jude's been around for pretty much all of Jesus' life and now into the life and the establishment of the church. Now one of the things that we see here about this person, Jude, is very clearly he's a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. Uh, If you read this, you would say this man definitely didn't lack warmth. I mean, when he got into his subject, it got real warm in a hurry. His emotions were right out and up front. This man is a pastor. He's pastoring the flock of his day. We see that he's a letter writer. You can see that he was in the process of writing this letter when this urgent matter was uh, called to his attention. You see that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In other words, he has placed himself. This is the key thing for us. Can we be like this man Jude? Can we place ourselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ? When he says that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that's what he's telling us about himself. And as a pastor, as a bondservant, he is a person who is being led by the Holy Spirit. You see that. He was intending to write one kind of a letter. He ends up writing something entirely different. In other words, this man can be clearly led by the lordship of the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that we read and hear and are very sure of is that this man, Jude, loves Christians. He is concerned for the welfare of the Christians. Now, I'm saying it that way initially because what I would like to say really isn't a very popular way of thinking today, but it's true as well. Jude loved the church. Uh, Just yesterday I was reading an article, and uh, the article was talking about the uh, popular singer Moby. Any of you all know about Moby? Not many people know about Moby. How about 10 million albums? Maybe you've missed somebody. Uh, If you hear the name Moby, you think of the, the whale, right? This man Moby's middle name is Melville. He is a direct descendant of the author of Moby Dick, and as a result of that, early on in his life, he was dubbed with this name Moby. Moby gave his life to Jesus Christ in a profound way in his late teens. He absolutely is committed to Jesus Christ. Moby has no use for the organized church. Now, what I'm trying to make a case for is this is very prevalent today. When we say we love Christians, we're saying we love the church. How many of you all learned this when you were young? How's it go? Here's the... There's the look inside and, well, which is the church? (laughs) 
The building, the steeple, the people. Well, it's the people. When we say we don't love the church, well, that's confusing. I love you. I think most of you love me. We love one another. Why? Because we're Christians. We're part of the church. This man's a pastor. He loves the church. He wants us to love the church. Now, this man, Jude, now, in verse 2, look what he's saying. He's talking about mercy and peace and love. And then in verse 3, contention. So verse 2, this man Jude is about the peace of the church. He thinks the church ought to be a peaceful place. Many of you know that I served as an interim in a half a dozen churches across the southeast. Most of these churches, when I went to them, had problems. They would come and I'd show up on their doorstep and they they just thought they had problems until I showed up. Then they began to know they had problems. But I would show up there and they would talk about their church. And one of the most common factors that I found in these churches that needed an interim was this. Their church lacked. What? Peace. They lacked peace. Pastors have come through the years and they've said, I'm going to this church, and this church has had trouble. What would you advise? I said, as much as it's humanly possible and it depends on you, make that church a safe place. Make that church a safe place for people. That's what they need. The church, for the members of the church, is to be a place of peace because all around us, the culture is in tumult. And we come in to a church where there is peace, and that in itself is a great witness. Now, the other thing you see is contention that begins in verse 3. Jude's a good pastor. He is for the peace of the church, but he's also for the, what's the next word? Purity of this church. You read what's going on in the church at Jude's time, and you begin to understand that things have come into this church. Now, let's be just plain. There are things in the church that have no business being in the church, but they're in there. I'm going to go even further. There are people that are in the church. Now listen, they have no business being left in a church. They should be put out. Now you say, now wait a minute, John. I'm not saying this. Jude's saying this. Jude, this apostolic pastor, is making this point. Now why are people not put out of the church? Because there's no authority 
being exercised in the church. Jude is calling for this authority and for it to be exercised in the life of this church. Now, let's, let's make him write this in the year 60. Okay, now it's 2011. This book's in the New Testament. Who's he writing to? Who's he writing to? He's writing to who? Us. This is a letter to you. This is a letter to me. Um, Sometimes churches will make purpose statements and they'll say, our goal is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to build people up in the faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, to make them disciples, our goal is to be a missionary church, and our goal, and I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, really? Can you tell me a church that those things aren't the goals of? What church shouldn't be trying to tell people about Jesus Christ? Is there a church that should be not telling people? Is there a church that should not be building disciples? Is there a church that shouldn't be involved in world missions? No. We got churches that are not involved in church discipline. Now, if you are an officer here in this church and you are being examined as an officer... And you are being asked, what are the classic signs of a biblical church? One of those signs would be church discipline. Now, if we're saying that we're going to have a church, a church, now, this is me now, (laughs) okay, a church that's worth bearing the name Church, it's got to be a safe place for the, the, the Christian believers, but it's got to be a place that exercises discipline in a very careful way to put people out of the church that have no business being in the church. Now, that's not a very popular idea. Jude, in verse 3, tells us, he says, You know, I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share. In other words, I had prepared a sermon. (laughs) Maybe it was on child rearing. (laughs) Maybe it was on tithing. Maybe it was on evangelism. Maybe it was on the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was, it was a nice sermon. That's what I was planning to give you. But right in the middle of my preparation for that sermon, the Holy Spirit showed up, and I felt I had to write you, and I had to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. This pastor is not addressing necessarily the elders. 
He's not necessarily addressing the deacons. He's addressing whom? The entire church. Now, I went to do one of these interims in Columbia, South Carolina. I was there for 14 months. I had to be examined by the local presbytery, and one of the men I knew from when I was in graduate school in South Carolina and the other two or three of the men on that commission that were examining me were professors at that graduate school of theology. And in the process of that examination, they said, what are your views on church discipline? Now, I kind of felt that was an odd question, the way it was asked. It was just no preparation, just point blank, what, John Kinzer, are your views? You're going to take over a church in our presbytery that's got trouble. What's your views on church discipline? One of the things I said is you can't exercise church discipline if the congregation hasn't been exercising church discipline amongst itself. Church can't have one person just doing all the weight. Think of it like this. Here's a pyramid. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with this picture? It's what? It's upside down. In this view, all the responsibility for church discipline would rest where? On the pastor, the elders. This is a proper pyramid. And this issue and this responsibility that we see here rests upon the entire church. Another situation I went to, and I was called in as an interim, and in the midst of it, I was brought a career counseling of the church. So as I met with this person, I was told that this person had, guess what? Why were they coming to me? They had what? Problems. Okay? So they're bringing their problems to a pastor. That's a good thing to do. Now, as this person came, and others knew they were coming, they went back five pastors. Five pastors. This person used to counsel this, this man. This pastor counseled them. This one, this one, and the one before you. And now they're coming to you. And guess how many other people they'd gotten counsel with during those years? Lots. Now, just simply... The issue was about as clear as black and white. There wasn't like shades of gray. So I I sat there and I listened to the people that were talking to me about the person that was coming. 
I said, well, what, what, pray tell, was this person told five pastors ago? That what they were doing was, what do you think the pastor said? Sin. Sin. Not only was it sin, it was, say it, wrong. And besides that, it was not good. And it was hurtful. Now, were these pastors all correct in what they said? Were they? They were. I asked one of these people before this person came through the door, I said, um, let me ask you a question. Five pastors. Do you know that any one of the five ever told them to stop? What? What do you mean? I mean, stop. Just stop. We're not going to tolerate that anymore. What? They told him it was wrong. They told him it was sin. They told him it was bad. It was hurtful. What about stop? Now, you may think I'm making much of this. But I want to pull the trigger on you right now. How many people do you know in your churches that are doing things that are harmful, that are not good, that are bad, that are sin, that are wrong, and you won't tell them what? Tell me, just think, when was the last time you, as a Christian, told another Christian to stop? Now, you might say, man, this is what the church was like. You go through the writings of the early epistles. Remember when Peter got out of hand in Antioch and he pulled away Barnabas and they withdrew from the Gentiles and only ate with the Jews who'd come down from Jerusalem from the party of James. Remember that story? What did Paul say he did to Peter, who holds the keys to the church? He said, I got in his face. (laughs) And I told him, what you're doing has got to stop. (laughs) Do we want a healthy church? We've got to address these things. We've got to address these things. Look at these things. I want to just go down these somewhat quickly. It talks about the people themselves beginning in verse 4. Certain men have come in They've slipped into this church. It's not that they've got bad theology. That's not the issue. It's not that they're denying the deity of Christ. It's not that they're denying this doctrine or teaching some other phony baloney doctrine like a cult. 
But what they did was they took grace, which is forgiveness of sins, and they changed it into freedom to sin. Now, if you ever went to a a Christian college, uh, most Christian colleges tend to be, rightfully so, a bit legalistic. They have to have rules. Now, in the context of a Christian college, there is a phrase that goes around like this. It's easier to get blank than it is to get blank. Anybody fill in the blanks? Any easier to get what? Than to get permission. (laughs) That's the church. That's the church. It's just easier just to forgive people than it is for somebody to come and be told no. (laughs) No. That's what they've done. Now, people have taken this from one end of the society to the other. That's what's rampant today. So he uses three illustrations. And he says in verse 5, you already know all this. Um, I want to remind you that the Lord took a group of people out of Egypt. He delivered them. He saved them. He redeemed them. He rescued them. And then they were destroyed. They perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief, their conduct and their unbelief. Now, tell me the name of the kind of people that he's talking about there. What do we call those people? They've got a name, a national name. They were what? They were Jews. James or Jude is a Jewish Christian, so he's talking about his ancestors. So he's talking about Jewish people. Now he talks about this. Now, by the way, they were to be the holy of the Lord. The angels. Angels as they were created, were all holy. But those who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned them, these God has disciplined. In this case, bound in darkness and everlasting change for the day of judgment. Jews, angels, look at the next one in verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, is that Jews? No. Those are what we call classically pagans. Pagans here, because of their sexual immorality and perversion, they serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. When we look at this, What we come to understand is that Jude is one of those writers, one of those pastors who is able to get the rubber to meet the road immediately. It's not about head knowledge about which people can twist and turn and gyrate and make sense and not make sense out of, but it's primarily Christian moral conduct that he's talking about here. The church, Christians, 
parents, believers, we have to, in our day and age, speak and bring apostolic authority and correction to our own churches, the churches of which we're a part. Let's pray. Now, Father, we look at this and we say, goodness, that is very different from so much of what we read in the New Testament. But it sounds so much like the message that needs to be expressed today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would speak to the hearts of other Christians and people that are in the church, that we have a level of respect and authority in their lives, and that we could bring them your correction, that they must live morally holy lives before Jesus Christ, their Lord and Master. Now we pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen.